The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. If you haven't heard her speak before, it really comes from a both a relaxed and a beautiful place of the heart and clarity of the mind. And she also has a background in all the different traditions of Buddhism that we see in the West. Uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism and a long time training in Theravada Buddhism and began her training, I think, in, with Zen, a Zen teacher, is that correct? Not began, but... Spent <laughs> time with a Zen teacher as well. So uh, thanks so much again, Miyoshi, for coming. Hopefully we'll see you more frequently than we have in the past. Thank you. Thank you. And tonight's talk is called Honoring the Fire of Truth. I just want to begin by saying how glad I am to be here. Um, it feels a little bit different coming here and knowing that I'm just not passing through. <laughs> uh, but lovely to be here. And it seems kind of appropriate on some level. And I, I didn't give it thought at the time when I was asked what I might talk about tonight. But the talk that um, I'm going to be giving was very much related to a part of my own process in making the decision to move here. Uh, I was talking about it one day with a friend, and as I was expressing something of what I was going through, she said, oh, you know, that would make a great Dharma talk. <laughs> and so you know, a piece of that is what's coming to you tonight. And that piece was, um, and the original name of this talk was something to the effect of living in the fire of truth. And for me, it was around sitting in this place where I was very happy in my life at IMS. Uh, I had a wonderful job. I worked with long-term yogis, practitioners. I lived right on site. Beautiful setting and lovely community to be in. And then I also have this teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, whom has just been so helpful to me. I really appreciate. And suddenly I'm being asked to step out of what is a really, it's a comfortable life. It feels like I'm still learning, but it was, it was really caught, you know, needing me to look deeply to see what, what was supporting the unfolding of my deepest vow within, which is where the word truth comes in on a certain level. I'm going to speak about truth in a few different ways tonight. But it, it was this process of looking to see how to help the heart to flourish, how to live into a sense of the full potential of being a human being. And I know that for each of us, it's something that we can struggle with in our lives. I don't know how it's been in your life. I don't want to say that your life has been the same as mine. But I know there's been times in my own life where for whatever reason, I've gone the easy way rather than you know, really sitting in what is the fire and sometimes feels like more like the seat of truth. Um, so tonight, just some exploration around this whole process because it's really fundamental in the the process of awakening, our spiritual journey. Um, we really begin to see as we look at our own hearts and mind through meditation 
that it isn't always as clear or easy as we think it should be. That when we look, that often we see we live our lives from a place of habit, from a place of convenience, from a place of complacency. And that's not an easy thing to say. You know, that, that you know, I've seen it in my own mind, and maybe it's true for you. I've seen at times that the difficulty in doing really learning to live and honor the place of truth within is sometimes not clearly seen because of habits of mind. Sometimes it feels blocked and accessible through a sense of fear, uh, uncertainty, not wanting to move into the unknown. Uh, You know, certainly as I sat in the comfort of my beautiful house that I was living in at IMS and looked at moving to a city, which I have not lived in cities much in my adult life. You know, I I feel a little bit like the country bumpkin coming to the city. But, you know, letting go of something that was very comfortable and not knowing what I was moving into, you know, it would have been very easy to stay where I was. But something deeper was calling. And so, you know, it's wanting to find the support in our lives, the way of looking, and listening, you know, really being able to listen to an intuitive wisdom. One of the things I discovered in my own process was, you know, it wasn't about what was right, what was wrong, but the sense of a movement of the heart wanting to be honored and then knowing that even in the doing of that whatever the lessons came there was a trust that that was the lessons that I needed to learn it wasn't coming out of the belief that if I come here everything's going to be rosy you know and it's just going to be wonderful uh, you know know, it wasn't believing that that was this was the all you know this was the greatest but it was believing that because I was trusting in that movement of my heart, that the lessons that come from it are what is needed in order to wake up, to break the trance of delusion. We often hear in today's culture, the the phrase about following your heart. And certainly, for those of us who have done some practice, we begin to see that the following your heart can, if we're not careful, be just another way of following your desires, following you know what you think your next hit is going to be, and really doesn't have that depth to it that sense of inquiry, integrity, of which a real sense of of touching into that deep vow within us. And deep vow sometimes maybe doesn't resonate, but it's really that, that deep longing to be happy, that sense of possibility of happiness, and being true to that. And in order to do that, we have to look We have to clarify. We have to be honest in the process.
It takes a real willingness of heart to sit in that place of honesty, to let our lives flow from a place of honesty. I was once really inspired by a story that I heard about Gandhi. It was uh, a story of Gandhi getting on a train in India. And if you've ever been to India, you might know what train stations there can be like. And if you haven't, they are pretty wild. (laughs) There's a lot going on, you know, a lot of people in a really small space and people just trying to get on all different trains going in different directions can be very chaotic. And then if you put Gandhi getting on a train, you can imagine like the draw that he would have in getting people to the train station. And so at this train station this day, there was a reporter, a journalist, who really wanted to get a pearl of wisdom from Gandhi. And so he yelled out to Gandhi as Gandhi was just getting on the train, give me a message for the people. And Gandhi's response was, my life is my message. It really struck me in the hearing that. You know, especially when I look back on my own life, you know, particularly in my youth, and I thought, mm, do I want that to be my message? <laughs> you know, some of the things that we do in our lives, you know, they, they don't speak uh, very wisely or they don't speak very compassionately. And, you know, just having this person being able to say with full honesty, my life is my message. It really gives me something to aspire to. That through whatever I do, I say, how I live in my life, that that can be my message. That my outer actions, my speech, reflect that inner intuitive wisdom and compassion. For many of us, that's a journey to really discover how we can let that come forth, how we can really let wisdom and compassion shine in our lives, in our lives and be the very place out of which we live our lives. It becomes interesting in our own experience when we can have a deep desire to be happy, a desire to know truth, to honor truth. And just to say about the word truth, for me as a child, as a young being who embarked on the path, it was really the word truth that rung out to me. You know, you know, religions I didn't know about, but there was something about knowing the truth. It was a language that spoke to me. And in having some sense of possibility with that, in some potential of that movement of the heart to realize it, we discover that at times 
there are experiences, things that happen in our lives, reactivity in the mind, that really don't portray the ideal of what we think that should look like. That we can have an image of ourselves that we often cling to. Uh, you know, I know for many, many years in my life, I thought I was a really relatively kind person. And then one year I went on a long retreat. I was on retreat actually for about six months. And partway into that retreat, there was such an outburst of rage, of anger, of jealousy. And it just did not fit with my picture of myself. And here it was, a momentary truth. You know, some aspect of experience that was presenting itself due to causes and conditions. And yet, there was just the wanting to deny, suppress, get rid of. It was unbecoming, as far as I could see. (laughs) And that is what often happens and creates conflict within ourselves. That, you know, just in in little things that happen in our lives, the little frictions, the little rubs of life, the things that happen, and anger, aversion, not wanting, frustration, disappointment, jealousy, pride. Now, these, these are all aspects of experience that we don't think are very pretty. And then, if we're really wanting to honor truth, and what do we do when these states arise? Really, as a practitioner, we begin to see that it is that willingness and courageousness of heart to let these states be, because they are simply rising due to causes and conditions. But we don't have to buy into them. We don't have to identify with them. We don't have to perpetuate them. But there is a level where they do have to be acknowledged, seen, let be. Or we will find that we live in a very split way, a very fragmented way, where we're trying to hold to this ideal of what it is to be a good human being. And then we have all these experiences that don't fit, that don't seem to be a part of, and yet are there. So this journey of awakening, it really takes a courageousness to let things be in a way that we do begin to see them as they are. And really, you know, one way of looking at truth is in how the Buddha talked about the Dharma being a refuge. And the Dharma is sometimes translated as truth or the lawfulness of life the way things are, and that the way things are can be a refuge. But this is where it gets, you know, kind of challenging when we are lost in habits, lost in misperception. And it's like needing to find how we can access that truth 
in the midst of confusion, in the midst of habits that are based on misperception. Habits that, you know, it doesn't mean that we're a horrible, kind, (coughs) unkind person, but habits that come from seeking happiness in misguided ways. And this is really what our practice, our meditation, is to help us to do. It's really to help stabilize the mind to be able to see things as they are, in their nature. And this is a form of truth. So one of the first things that we learn as we meditate is actually the power of honesty, of really being able to let things be as they are. In the moment when anger is present, to know it simply as anger, or frustration, or jealousy. To really let it be, without adding anything to it, without taking anything away from it. And this is the function of mindfulness, seeing things as they are. In our meditation, we begin to see how just doing this helps the mind to calm, to become less reactive, less tormented. We begin to see that the mind finds some sense of balance within this. Now, that I, I've noticed in, in my own experience where there might have been something that was really troubling me. You know, some kind of agitation that was there. Maybe something not wanting to be seen. And then, you know, so maybe it was some, some form of aversion. And then suddenly it was just seen, okay. It's aversion. Aversion is present. You know, I'm really just opening to that. Aversion is like this. You know, knowing the texture of aversion. And, you know, just something about sitting in that seat of honesty. What was like a bone. Where it was, you know, just, it wasn't trying to hold up something, some image that wasn't true, which takes a lot of energy, which often, you know, if we have some image in our life that we're trying to uphold, that just becomes so tiring, so exhausting. And yet, this was just like, you know, the times in life where we call a spade a spade. Oh, there's no fight, there's no strain, there's nothing to kind of hold up. Things are just as they are. And there really can be a great relief in that. You know, it's just an ease with that. And that's where we find that honesty can be really uh, easeful, like a balm, refreshing. And, you know, we find, you know, that as we sit, if we sit really being able to be honest with our experience, there's a sense of integrity. You know, that it just, 
there's a resonance. No, but I, I, uh, I like the description I heard about, uh, you know, ringing the bell of truth, and that there just comes a resonance when you know we hear something from somebody and it rings as true. There's this deep inner resonance. <laughs> We find that as in our own hearts and minds, we begin to sit in a place of honesty where we can actually honor this truthfulness, that it helps us to have more compassion when we see others caught in confusion because we know how painful that is. And we know what it's like to suffer out of being lost in that confusion. And so our hearts naturally begin to open rather than to react when we see somebody acting out of confusion. In the Buddhist teachings, we find that truthfulness is one of what's called the ten paramis. And these ten paramis are sometimes called the requisites for enlightenment. They are qualities of heart and mind that are um, really beneficial, helpful to awakening. They support the realization of the awakened mind or the seeing of things in the true nature and the, the other of the paramis being that of um, generosity, ethical conduct, renunciation, effort, wisdom, patience, resolve, loving kindness, equanimity. Uh, these are all really beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And truthfulness is said to be one that is necessary for all the fruition of all of the other paramis. And it's also said to be um, the parami that the Buddha, or before he was a Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva, and he was working with you know, bringing to uh, full fruition all of these qualities so that when that night when he sat under the Bodhi tree and fully awakened, uh, it was all of these power paramis coming to fruition that enabled that to happen. And it was said that during the many, many lifetimes it took to, to have that uh, kind of buoyancy of heart and mind to awaken, it took many lifetimes of, of bringing to fruition these other paramis. Uh, but during the course of all of these lifetimes, it said that the parami of truthfulness was one that he never uh, regressed in, that he never uttered knowingly an untruthful word. I mean, it, it to me spoke very strongly when I heard that, that there is a real power to having truthfulness in our lives, that it, it is so important because 
It is what helps to dispel confusion. And that, you know, the, the confusion is the cause of ignorance, of darkness, of not seeing clearly. We can see how this could be so by just looking at it in our own lives. If there's somebody whom we really trust, and what it's like to be around them. You know, that when we're with somebody that we trust, there's a sense of being able to put our guard down, being able to relax. And I've often found the people that I really trust, it's like a sense that my own wisdom comes forth because there isn't this guardedness. And that this creates an environment in which there's harmony, unity, in which there's a sense of safety. There's really a lot of power in speech, in what we say. You know that speech can provoke wars, incite violence. Speech can lead to harmony, unity. And yet, if we look in our lives, it's quite likely that we had a lot of training in the English language or whatever language we uh, grew up uh, speaking, that we, there was a lot of attention given to sentence structure, um, pronunciation, and yet there wasn't so much emphasis often given to true communication, to communication that reflects truth that reflects our own inner sense of possibility. And that because of that, we often find that our speech doesn't reflect truth, that our speech is run by habits of mind, and often unwholesome habits that perpetuate suffering. I know there was a time some years ago where I found through um, communication that I've made a number of mistakes, you know, and not even intentional, but in communicating with others, I had caused pain. I had caused others to suffer. And so I felt like I wanted to understand better how to really communicate honoring truth. And so I took a course in communication. And it was very interesting. The course had people from all different walks of life in it. And it was interesting to see that each of us was really struggling with how to communicate in the midst of diversity, in the midst of differing views, in the midst of feeling like people were hurting us. Uh, you know, how to be really skillful at this time. How to not just succumb to habit. Uh, and it, w it was, for me, really interesting. And the word misperception kept coming up in the training, which I found very interesting, too, because we often hear about misperception in Dharma teachings. And we see that, you know, when we don't pay attention, we misperceive the world. 
And so, you know, it just, it was really interesting. I mean, so much of our speech comes from speaking quite impulsively, speaking whatever thoughts arise in our mind. And as practitioners, you know, we, if you only ever just sat here for the half hour before this uh, talk, I mean, you just see how many thoughts arise in the mind. And then you look at some of those thoughts. I mean, that's, you know, one of the things I've seen in meditation. You just can't believe some of the thoughts you have. You know, it's like, where did that come from? It's, you know, because you sense of disbelief. You know, and sometimes, you know, just look at these thoughts and think, wow, it's such a rubbish tip in here. Um, and if we aren't mindful, that's what comes out. You know, we don't pay attention. That's what comes out. And that's what our message gets reflected as. And, you know, it's just the blah, 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 blah of the mind. <laughs> And it really has an effect. That's what's important to know. That's what our message becomes. I'd like to share a poem that I think speaks of something of this importance. And this is called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. And it's by a man named William Stafford. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders the circus, won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we should fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that we awake people, be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. The signals that we give should be clear. Should reflect our deep call to awakening, our deep call to bring forth that which alleviates the distress, the cries of the world, the pain. The signals that we put out are important. And it's really through our mindfulness that there is a potential, a possibility of having it reflect 
our deep inner wisdom. But again, it's not easy because our speech often comes so impulsively, so quickly. I mean, in the midst of conversation, you know, we can be carried away in no time saying something that we deeply regret. And it takes a great willingness of heart, uh, a willingness to look, to look to what's motivating our speech. You know, that I've been amazed to see how many times there can just be, you know, the, the saying of something, telling of some story, and the wanting to embellish it just a little bit to, to you know, just boy one's sense or one's image. Or that sometimes, you know, there is a reaction in the mind and a motivation to just want to hit somebody a little bit. You know, and sometimes we even do that through a joke. You know, that, that there's just a slight little edge where we want to get to somebody. And you know that oftentimes our motivation is not coming from that deep place of wanting to alleviate suffering. That we uh, can be motivated by aspects that are not so wholesome. But you know, it, it's like in those moments, needing to be honest, true. You know, just looking to see. And then in the seeing that it's not so wholesome, the willingness to let it go. The Buddha, you know, he had a great generosity of heart in sharing his wisdom. And he talked about there being five marks of speech that is helpful uh, or words well spoken. He talked about uh, the words being timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and uh, being spoken from a mind filled with loving kindness. So just to speak a little about each of these marks of well-spoken words, uh, words that are timely or appropriate. This is really a good one for people from our culture who you know, we so often feel like we need to speak our truth. But then when we look at it being timely, this really opens it up from being uh, saying something that really feels like it can be uh, quite self-referencing to taking into account the full picture, the full view, uh, where we might look whether in that moment our speaking what we feel we need to is going to be able to be heard is going to be useful or helpful. Um, an example of this is that maybe in our interactions with somebody, they have been doing something that's been quite agitating to us, and we feel like we really need to address it. And then in a moment where we're feeling the need to address it, we notice that actually they're really shaky in that moment that there's a fragility and that our offering this might be that which just pushes them right over the edge. You know, that it's not the right time to be saying this. And, and so, you know, it, it can be something that, yes, maybe it feels like it's going to need to be addressed, but this might not be the appropriate moment. 
It really helps us to open up the lens, to be more inclusive, to speak that which is true, that which is not based in deception, that which is some reflection on truth. It's not um, colored by greed, aversion, or delusion. To speak in a gentle way, where I don't know if you've noticed in your life, but many times when we speak in a harsh, critical way, even though what we're saying may have some ring of truth, if it's spoken in an unkind way, it isn't heard. So speaking in a gentle way, speaking that which is purposeful, useful, helpful. Many times in life, our speech is frivolous. You know, that there's just the, again, the blah, blah, blah of the mind. And, you know, what happens out of that is that, you know, if we blah, blah, blah all the time, then people don't even listen. You know, that, that it just, anything that could be helpful gets lost in it. We lose our way, so to speak. And then the last of the five marks of words well spoken is that of speaking with a mind filled with loving kindness. Uh, and this is, you know, this to me, if in the first instance our mind is filled with loving kindness, uh, Mecca, that all of the other marks of words well spoken will naturally follow, will naturally be truthful. Uh, will be gentle, purposeful, that when the mind is filled with loving kindness, there is an inclusivity. There is a sense of friendliness, a caring, connectedness, that we're not speaking from that very self-referential place that can create separation, conflict, agitation. And with all of this, to say that it doesn't mean that we are always nice. No, it's really easy to interpret this. Oh, let's just be nice. Because that might not be truthful. <laughs> you know, that there is a fierce compassion. There is a gentle but firm way of speaking. There is the speaking of words when it may be really difficult because the paradigm is that of deceit. And it isn't always that to stay silent if, you know, that sometimes we need to speak out in ways that are really going to challenge the paradigm. So it isn't about being nice. But it is about accessing wisdom rather than speaking out of aversion or anger. And that is a huge difference. One of the ways that I've seen it in my own life has been around learning to say no with an open heart, a loving heart. Because earlier in my life, the saying of no meant aversion meant a sense of needing to cut off. And yet, 
No can be better received when it is spoken with a loving heart. I'd like to share with you some words from a monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a Theravadan monk, uh, a Western monk, who has really devoted his life to the teach, uh, to uh, translating the suttas and the commentaries, the suttas being the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and this is something he says of truthful speech. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things as they are, which requires that in communication with others, we respect things as they are by speaking the truth. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom the real nature. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire. I really resonate with the line, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion. And this is what the journey of awakening is about. Taking a stand on reality. In working with truthfulness in our lives, in our speech, you know, mindfulness, that honesty, that willingness to see what's motivating our speech. It's really helpful to the work we do around being mindful of thoughts. You know, just as I've mentioned, if we're not aware, these thoughts become our speech. So at the practice that we do, sitting in silence, really helps us to train for being mindfulness of thought in our daily lives. We also train to become aware of emotions or mind states. And these uh, mind states color our consciousness. And again, if we aren't aware when aversion is coloring consciousness, then we tend to act or speak out of that mind state. By learning to be aware of the mind states, we begin to see that there can be a choice. It's, you know, one of the ways that I often see this in my own mind is that there can be just a day where there's a little bit of a rub with the way things are unfolding and the versions present. They're just kind of a niggling in the mind. You know, and if we don't watch it, then we're just biting people's heads off as they approach us. It has nothing to do with what they say. It's just that, that manifestation of that aversion. But if we are aware that aversion is present, then it's like we don't need to speak from there. You know, we can hear what they say and be aware that there's a filter of aversion, and then the voice of wisdom can actually still come through. We don't have to speak out of that place. So 
So looking in our lives to see how we can bring truthfulness into our speech, our actions, so that they reflect our deepest vows. When we look at truth as being the way of things, this is also what our practice is turning us towards. We find that there are two levels to truth, the level of the relative, the the level of experience, the level of self and others, you and me. that there needs to be an honoring of this level of the relative, but on another level, the level of the absolute, we begin to see that things aren't in, in, uh, things are, there's no separate, unchanging entity within it all. That there is a play of conditions, a play of life, a flow of life that is unfolding due to uh, causes and conditions. And it doesn't belong to any one of us. That there is this level of seeing things in their nature as they are that brings about a great ease and peace when it is realized. And what our journey is, is to learn to live as human beings on this level of the relative, honoring experiences, honoring what arises in our experiences, but not solidifying them into being who we are, because they are not our true nature. Letting our lives be an exploration, an investigation, what it is that resonates, that rings true, that reflects our deepest vows, our deepest wisdom, and really letting that come forth in the world. And it's really up to each and every one of us. Because the darkness of ignorance is deep. The world is in a troubled time. And the dispelling of ignorance is within our own minds, within our own hearts. If we don't do it, who will? I've seen in my own life that um, there is, at one point, kind of a, a, a riding on the laurels of my teachers, feeling that they were doing pretty good work in the world. And, and then, you know, um, 
I at one point had been to Burma and I had temporarily ordained as a nun and I lived in a nunnery and there was a couple of women there who really touched me one was elderly she was in her 80s she was um, getting near to death that was evident she lay in her bed all day but she was very bright she'd been a nun since she was seven or eight years old she uh, had dedicated her life to being a nun um, I would often go and sit in her room and she would wake up and she wouldn't know if it was day or night and yet being in her presence there was just kind of an inner resonance that happened and her niece was the abbot or abbess of the nunnery and she was a delightful alive joyful woman who just to me again was somebody who inspired me as to, as to what the potential is when there is this inner resonance of truth and uh, in meeting these two women it was deeply inspiring and you know after I had left there it was in my mind always a place I could go back to if the world became too much and then one day I heard that both of these women had passed away within one month of each other in the case of the elderly nun, you know it was somehow to be expected but when I thought of this vital vitally alive joyful nun, it, you know it was just like wow really kind of shocking and it was just like watching you know something some bright light that had been in the world pass away and just the sense of the responsibility shifting to me that needing to do my part this is what keeps the Dharma alive in the world this is what we need to stay true to and really on some level it's that staying true to that deep desire to be happy and to know it is possible to know it is something we can realize in our lives and that that path can be joyful it can be a way of relieving dispelling you know this darkness of delusion and standing in that light of truth this is what we're here to do this is what our practice can help us to realize in our lives I'd just like to end the, this part of the evening with a short poem from a 12th century monk and poet named Sagyo. Uh, he says, The mind for truth begins like a stream, shallow at first, but then adds more and more depth while gaining clarity. So let's just sit for a moment. Just letting the words fall away. Just finding that sense of honesty, uprightness, 
that willingness to be with what is, whatever it is. And I'd like to invite you all to open your eyes, opening our awareness to the space in the room, and opening the room up to discussion, to comments, questions. Because um, there is a difference between momentary truth and ultimate truth. And this is the piece, actually, that I, I was glossing over because I was feeling my time was getting on. But around the relative and the ultimate levels of truth, and both being important. That uh, many times what we experience in our changing experience, when we attach or identify with it, where we are seeing it as, in a sense, truth, but not on the level of the, the changing nature that it is of. And that you're right, in a daytime, uh, or you know, in the course of a day, there are many, so many experiences that can pass through the mind that we can't really call any of them the absolute truth because it's all changing. And that, but yet, we often act as if it's the absolute truth. That, you know, in a moment of anger, indignation, indignation, sometimes my pronunciation is not so good, but anyhow, we get really indignant about something, that there is an identification with that that um, is, is if that is ultimate truth. 
And that isn't what I'm talking about. That isn't, it isn't that we want to give immense value to all of those changing experiences. But the truth is in seeing that they are changing experiences. In seeing that they are simply conditioned. In seeing that they are not absolute truth. They are not who we truly are. And yet we can't do that unless we're honest that they're arising. Because otherwise there's a way in which we are dodging or denying or suppressing. So it's being able to allow all of these changing experiences to come, to be known, to be seen, but not taken to be something they are not. The, the honoring of truth is that willingness to keep looking rather than to be simply settling on a level of misperception that we commonly do where we are not really looking at what's happening, not seeing something as it is. Does that help clarify it all, or do you? Uh, it does, to some degree, it's almost like truth, then, is being awareness of what we're experiencing right now is what you're calling truth. Um, One level of truth is things as they are right now. And when that is really touched, known, it gives rise to wisdom and compassion. It manifests as compassion. Yes? I interpreted what you were um, saying essentially talking about integrity, that deep, uh, constant examination, uh, with complete honesty because I don't know Polly very well. Um, when there is an honesty, it's like a natural integrity. It's not like something we we uh, cultivate, you know, come 
cause to be. It's just, it's a natural process when there's that honesty. Because there isn't the, the fidgeting way from, there isn't any sense of misperception or trying to deceive, which creates tension, agitation. You know, that it, um, it's very natural in a sense. But as far as the poly, I can't say. Sorry. Yeah. Talk, talk more about how to say no to a woman heart without being shy. I think we could probably do a full talk on that. <laughs> For me, uh, there's been a couple of things that have been really helpful. One is to see where. It's a reaction in me that's saying no, where there is a um, aversion. You know, when well, like when no is just coming from a place of reactivity, it's like being able to see it uh, to see it in the mind and not speak it from that place. It may be tied to wisdom but it may just be in reaction. And so then it's like being able to see the reactivity in the mind. So being able to see if there's reactivity happening in this mind. One helpful aspect of it. Another helpful aspect is in communication to be aware of the other person as a human being. It sounds really basic, but it really is helpful. It's to to care for them, to have compassion. So much of our miscommunication comes out of misperception. Somebody, you know, misperceiving something about us. Uh, I know that in my own life that. there's been a lot of pain when I think that somebody's not seeing me clearly, or not hearing what I say, has distorted something, and then they're living as if what I said, what they heard me say was true. And that it's like just being able to have that openness of heart to include that person as you speak, which can be scary if it's a heated situation. That, that, but it's really to not lose sight of their humanness in that moment. And something that I found really helpful, like if my mind was reactive in aversion, and I refocused my mind on somebody's suffering, that you know they're doing something that's really annoying, but I look at the suffering out of which they're acting from, my heart naturally opens. And then it's easier to draw boundaries, to say no, to to speak clearly from that place. But if I'm just speaking out of the reactivity, then it's got the edge. Then it's you know it's filled with that reaction. So it's needing to identify reaction in my own mind. It's being able to connect with the other person as a living being and to speak 
from the clearest place that I can access. watch is appropriate. You know, that sometimes it might not be appropriate to to uh, really voice all that's going on within you. But that there can be ways that even in something as simple as somebody asking to go to the toilet, that there could be a looking at it from another perspective together that could be helpful. And so it and it could be something that you play with. But it, I think by your being able to see when that reactivity, that, that just that response of the easiest thing here, it's like, well, what I really feel is no, but I'll say yes just because it'll go away then. Um, your willingness to see that gives, opens up the potential for what else is here. How else can we relate here? And just play with it. my mind going with this one. <laughs> um, so, actually, I'm just not quite clear what
being a thing in and of itself will get rigid, will get tight, will try to perfect what is really a lawful unfolding. And this is where I think maybe it's, it's like looking to in our lives where there is a deep resonance where there is more sense of peace, ease, trust, where there's joy that's just not based in sense pleasure, but comes from being in harmony with life. And the looking to see that which obstructs it, where we get caught, where we get hung up. And where we identify in ways that just keep that suffering cranking around. So there's a piece for me, I think, when I'm speaking about this, where it's like, honoring that little whisper inside, that sense of possibility. Know that we all have as human beings a deep desire to be happy. But clarifying what that is. And it's a continual looking moment to moment to moment. And our practice helps us to develop a deep listening for the voice of intuitive wisdom, which isn't just the ruminations of the thinking mind. Yes? Um, in response to the other question, the other side of being able to say no is being able to receive a no that mm-hmm. may or may not have given some time to. Mm-hmm. And what are your thoughts on being truthful in that When we start speaking about situations, it's to know that each situation is unique in itself and that there is no kind of remedy, (laughs) magic pill, so to speak. But, you know, it's like when somebody is saying no to us and there's a harshness to it, it, it will really depend. You know, that, that sometimes in some situations it, it can be as simple as just acknowledging without blaming the other person what you're experiencing. It can be if, if it, well, you're in a situation where there's danger, that what you really need to do is to remove yourself from the danger. 
know, it's going to be different in different situations. But it's really to honor and acknowledge what's happening there and respond in the wisest way. If in that moment that you notice that you just get completely reactive, then to see that. to Because the more, when we are run by that reactivity, we can't access wisdom. We're just lost in it. So it's finding our ground again. Finding, you know, that place to sit where we can know what's going on. But in different instances, the actual response will be different. I think we'll leave it here. Thank you so much, Miyoshin, for coming. And thank you, everyone, for your questions and comments. And if you want to know more about uh, Miyoshin's teaching here in the cities, you can go to kiragar.org. And I wrote it on the poster on the bulletin board announcing tonight's talk. Um, and I think you need to click Minneapolis and you'll get the local programs, um, meeting times for some of their offerings. So thanks again, Miyoshin. Wonderful talk. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. And uh, thank you all for being here. And I really want to say um, this is my first time being in this building. And uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I know that uh, the story of this is coming from Mark's practice, sitting in his living room, opening it up, and just this whole community coming together in this way. And I just really honor that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.